Well, my name's Mark. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here. And if you've been with us, you've known we've been going through a series on the parables of Jesus. And um, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed studying these parables, looking at the eternal truths that Jesus taught through earthly stories. So I, I carry a little bit of sadness with me this morning, I'll be honest, because today is our last day in this, our series of the parables. Now, we, we've barely scratched the surface of, of getting through all of them, so perhaps we will um, bring this series back up at some point and cover some more, but we're going to at least put it on pause for now, because next week we're going to be diving into the book of First Peter. First Peter was written, it's a little... Um, New Testament book written by the Apostle Peter, a first century fisherman, and his words are going to be very applicable to us here in the 21st century. I know it's been a long time from the first century to the 21st, 20 centuries if you could do the math, Um, but his words are very applicable to our cultural moment in our rapidly changing world as we seek to live faithfully as Christ followers. So I'm excited about jumping into that new series next week. But for now, go ahead and open your Bibles or the digital copy that you have on your phone to Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, as we read our parable for the morning together. And if you're able, please stand with me as we read God's word this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. The words are going to be up here on the screen behind me. Let's read. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And those who hired first... Now, when those who hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last workers, these last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day in the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. Father, as we look into your word this morning, Lord, this, this parable is sort of offensive. It, it, it goes, cuts against the grain of, of how we're um, wired for fairness. So, Father, teach us. Teach us what you wanted to teach your original disciples when you told this story. When when Jesus was walking with them on earth and used an earthly story to to teach eternal truth. Open our hearts to that through the power of your spirit and your word, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
You know, I recently heard a fellow pastor tell a story of a man in his early 60s who had just lost his wife to cancer. And although this man was devastated over, over his loss, his heart attitude remained steadfastly positive in the midst of his adverse circumstances. He said, God has been so kind to me. I, I never even thought I would get married. And then in my late 40s when I met my wife and we fell in love, we got married. It was so kind of the Lord to, to bless me with her. And because we were older, we, we never thought that we would have children of our own. But the Lord blessed us with a child. My wife had our boy when, when she was 48. And now he's 12 years old. And as his 12-year-old son stood behind him, beside him, he continued, it was so kind of God to give us 12 years together as a family, wasn't it? The Lord has blessed us. And as I heard this story of this man's heart attitude towards God, I, I tried to put myself in his situation, tried to put myself in his shoes. Would I have had the same perspective? Would I have come to the same conclusions about God's blessings? Honestly, probably not. I probably would have had the opposite perspective and conclusions. I probably would be saying stuff like this. All of my friends got married in their 20s. I had to wait forever to get married. And then when I finally got married, it was so hard to have children. All my friends already had three or four, and we struggled to just have one. And we had to go through the immense stress of a high-risk pregnancy. And now the Lord has taken my wife away from me, and I have to finish raising this child on my own while I'm in my 60s. And my son, he has to experience life without a mom. God, what kind of God are you? God, this is not fair. See the difference in perspective? You know, one of my mentors once told me, Mark, Life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you re react to it. And I, I'm pretty sure he was right. 10% what happens to you, 90% how you react to it. Because as a pastor, I, I've seen people go through a, a wide variety of painful and trying circumstances. And I've observed something. People who are going through the same difficult circumstances oftentimes have very different outcomes in their heart attitude and their heart posture towards God. Some people become very bitter towards God, while some other people going through very similar circumstances actually become better rather than bitter. Many people grow angry with God, while others grow in their thankfulness to him through the very same brokenness in this world. So what's the difference? What's the secret be between becoming better and becoming, what's the secret to becoming better instead of becoming bitter? How do we become more thankful as life goes on instead of more jaded and cynical in the midst of this broken world in which we all live? That's the question we're going to wrestle with together this morning. And it's a question that this parable of Jesus is going to help us get a perspective on as it reveals two ways of looking at life. The first is the, the more common way, and, and that's through the lens of fairness, the lens of fairness. The second, less common, but essential alternative for growing better rather than bitter is looking at life, say this out loud with me, through the glasses 
of grace. So you can look at life through the lens of fairness, or you can look at life through the glasses of grace, and it makes all the difference. Well, before we unpack this parable, we've got to look at what? You should know. Context. Very good. You are learning. I'm so proud. Context, context, context. So if you have your Bibles open, I want you to glance at what comes before this parable. This parable begins in chapter 20. Let's look at what happens in chapter 19. Jesus has just encountered someone. He's encountered a rich young man who's come up to him and asked him about eternal life. How can I inherit eternal life, this guy says. And Jesus offered this man something that he offered to very few people. He offered this man, he he said, come, follow me. Jesus didn't say that to everybody. He said it to a select few. 12 that I know of, Um, but he said it to this guy too, at least 13, come follow me. But before he asked him to follow him, before he extended this invitation, he asked him to do something. He said, sell your possessions and give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. But this guy apparently loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus. Because instead of taking Jesus up on his offer, the man went away sad. He evidently wanted the security and the significance that his riches provided to him more than he wanted Jesus. Jesus knew that. This was a test. This was a test because when you follow somebody, when you follow Jesus, that person's priorities becomes your own. Jesus' priorities becomes your own. So you can have no me first while you're following. You cannot put anything else above Jesus. And this guy's stuff was more important to him than Jesus was. Jesus knew that. He wasn't just trying to get this guy to give away his stuff. He was trying to change his God. He was trying to show this guy the true source of significance and security and satisfaction. It doesn't come from money. It comes from your connection with Jesus. But this guy does not take Jesus up on his offer. He walks away. Jesus offered him an incredible trade, but he doesn't take the deal. He wasn't willing to leave his riches to follow Jesus. And good old Peter, who we'll be hearing a lot from starting next week, observes the whole interaction. And Peter starts to compare himself with this rich guy who's walking away, who chose not to follow Jesus. And Peter starts doing the math in his head. And he asked Jesus a question in verse 27. Peter asked this. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything to follow you. What, will there, what then will we have? Peter looks at this rich guy walking away and basically says, The rest of us disciples aren't like that guy, Jesus. Andrew and I gave up our fishing company to follow you. Matthew gave up his lucrative career in tax collecting to follow you. So, so what's the payoff, Jesus? We want to make sure we're given a fair shake. What's in it for us that this rich guy isn't going to get? You know, it's evident here that Peter was looking at life through the all-too-common lens of fairness. And what's surprising to me here is that Jesus didn't immediately push back on Peter's comparative perspective, but instead, probably with a, a, a very patient smile on his face, straightforwardly answers Peter's question in verse 28. Jesus said to them, 
truly, I, I like he said to them, he knew Peter wasn't the only one asking it. Everybody else was thinking it. Peter was the only one saying it. That's why I like Peter. Verse 28. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, this isn't some kind of prosperity gospel that Jesus is preaching here. The hundredfold that he mentions probably refers to the houses and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers that we all get when we become part of a new family, the family of God, the community of believers. When I was a young single man, um, I had a lot of mothers in the church, we'll just put it that way, who were trying to set me up with all kinds of people. But um, the most significant thing that Jesus promises his disciples here is what? Did anybody catch it? Yeah. Eternal life. Eternal life. His followers will inherit eternal life in the renewed world that he will one day recreate. So Jesus assures Peter, hey, Peter, you've made a good trade. <laughs> you, you, you've, you've done well. But then in verse 30, Jesus gives a bit of a warning to Peter and to the rest of the disciples, kind of a shot over the bow of their hearts, so to speak, a shot over the bow of their comparative fairness-seeking hearts. And he begins to address the motives behind Peter's question. What will there be for us? Verse 30, Jesus says this, but many, this is the last verse of chapter 19 before we get to chapter 20, but many who are first will be last and the last first. You see, Jesus knew that, that Peter's question had a heart motive behind it. He knew that Peter verbalized it because he was comparing himself to others and looking at life through the lens of fairness. And Jesus wants to nip that in the bud. He wants to encourage Peter to instead start looking at life through the glasses of grace. And so he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And now you're probably still confused, and so were the original disciples. And Jesus saw the look of confusion on their face. He knew what was going on in their heads. They were trying to do the math, the first, last, the last, first. This doesn't make sense. We call the first, first because they're first. We call the last, last because they're last. What on earth are you talking about, Jesus? And so Jesus tells a parable. Why? to explain what he means by the first shall be last and the last shall be first. In the parable, a landowner goes out at 6 a.m. in the morning, the first hour, and hires workers for his vineyard. And he negotiates with these workers. They're, they're, they said, well, what are you going to pay us if we come to work for you? And the agreement is made between them on a fair day's wage, a denarius, what everyone needed to make it through the day, a denarius. That was one day's wage for a common worker. And he goes out to the marketplace again at the third hour, 9 a.m., hires more workers, this time simply telling them he will pay them whatever is right and that they must trust him. And they go to work. Um, oh, actually, he doesn't tell them he must, they must trust him. He, they, they simply trust him, and they go to work without making a deal. His is the same at noon, and then again at 3 in the afternoon, hiring even more workers. And then finally, at finally 5 p.m. rolls around. One hour before quitting time, 
the landowner goes out one more time to the marketplace, sees guys still hanging around there waiting to be hired who hadn't been hired, and says to them, you go work in my vineyard too. One hour left. We read this in verse 6. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And these workers were quite happy that they'd at least get an hour's worth of work in. Um, They don't even try to bargain with the landowner about how much he's going to pay them. They, They simply trust that he'll pay them what's right. Probably expecting what? A twelfth of a denarius. You know, that's not much. That's not going to buy much. But at least it's something rather than nothing. Verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. And that surprises everyone. You would have heard gasps from the original audience. A denarius? Wow, they only worked an hour. That's a full day's wage. And at this point, the first hour workers who are exhausted and covered in sweat and dirt watching this go down are likely thinking what? Oh my goodness, did you see what those guys got paid? They got paid a full denarius. That means that we're going to get 12. We won't have to work for two weeks. And so they come and they, they hold out their hand, probably both hands to fit 12 denarii in there. And then what happens? Verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius, a day's wage. Can you picture this? Can you picture the surprise on their faces when, when the, the guy just, they're holding out both hands and the... the A foreman just puts one denarii in their their hands, a denarius. And if you put yourself in their sandals, you've been working hard all day. You're covered with sweat and dirt. It's been a hot day. You can relate to their, their grumbling, can't you? I know I can. Just one denarius? This doesn't seem fair. This is exactly what the 11th hour workers got, the people that only worked one hour, the people who barely broke a sweat. Shouldn't we get more? Verse 11. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. Now, when you read this parable, who do you empathize with? And I I empathize naturally with the first-hour workers. I I begin feeling sorry for them. This doesn't seem fair. They should have gotten more than a denarii or denarius. Denarii is the plural of denarius, if you hadn't figured that out yet, and I still haven't figured out how to use them right. But what kind of employer does this? I mean, (laughs) pays everybody the same? We, we We need to report this guy to the Labor Commission. And we act this way because the default mode of all of our hearts, the default mode for all of us is to to look at life through the lens of fairness. This is how we're all wired from birth, and it comes out at a very young age. Just look at kids. 
at a very young age, they are wired. They have have a radar for fairness, don't they? All the mothers in the room will say yes. They'll constantly say, this isn't fair, this isn't fair. I mean, you can walk up to a kid who's playing perfectly happily with a toy, you know, and a surefire way to make that kid unhappy is to give the kid next to them what? A better toy. And all of a sudden, they're unhappy with their toy. For instance, if I, as a dad, were to go away on a business trip to Colorado or something and come home from my travels with gifts for my daughters, let's just pretend that they're young again, and I give my oldest daughter, Ellie, a Colorado T-shirt. Then Mia comes expectantly, and I, I pull out of my bag a Colorado hat. And they put them on, and they go, oh, this is great, Dad. Thank you so much. And then little Emma comes, and, and I pull out of my bag, here, honey, I got you an iPad mini. <laughs> you know, Ellie and Mia were perfectly content with, with, with their gifts. They were ecstatic with them until Emma got the iPad. That's not fair. We're all wired that way. And we oftentimes in life become the fairness police. At least I do. (laughs) How come that person got that promotion instead of me? How does she get such a good-looking and attentive husband when I got this? Why are their kids so, so sitting still in church? Why did that person get the recognition when I've served so faithfully and even harder? And I've gotten overlooked. How come they have such a high-paying job when I work hard and barely make ends meet? It's just not fair. Maybe you don't struggle with this, but I do. Especially when I compare myself to the people I studied biology with in college in our our pre-med program. People that um, I got better grades then and who asked to see my notes when studying for tests who are now making a lot more money than me because they went on to medical school instead of taking a sharp right turn and heading to seminary. And they're not worried about how they're going to pay for college for their kids. And it's like, no, it's just not fair. I struggle with this. My friends, looking at life through the lens of fairness is a surefire recipe for bitterness and unhappiness. But there's another way to live. And that's looking at life through the glasses of grace. We'll talk more about that here in a little bit. But how do we begin looking at life through the glasses of grace? Well, the questions that the landowner asks, there's three questions that the landowner asks at the end of the parable that are going to get us down the road of understanding that. The first question is found in verse 13. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. The landowner points out that he's actually not being unfair. These first hour workers struck a deal with the landowner, and the landowner has honored the terms of the contract. They got what they were hoping to get when they showed up in the marketplace at the beginning of the day, hoping to be hired for a denarius. They got a full day's wage. The landowner in this story is not unfair, but he is gracious, and grace isn't fair. That sounds contradictory, but hang with me. He's not unfair, but he's gracious. 
And then the landowner asks two more questions in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Hey, isn't this my money? Can't I do with my money what I want to do with it? Can't I be generous with it? Am I allowed to be generous with what I have? And I want you to think about something here. What did every worker need that showed up that morning waiting to be hired in the marketplace? What did every worker need? A denarius. A day's wage. Some of them got chosen early to work. Some got chosen later. But what did all of them still need? A denarius. And this landowner graciously blessed everyone with exactly what they needed. Now, did the later workers earn it or deserve it? No. No. They got undeserved favor from the landowner. What, what's another name for undeserved favor? Starts with the G, ends in ace. Say it out loud. Grace. Good. Undeserved favor. But instead of looking at life through the glasses of grace, the first hour workers chose to look at their circumstances through the lens of fairness. Instead of rejoicing that the less fortunate workers who didn't get chosen at the beginning of the day still got what they needed to survive, the first hour workers were bent out of shape that they did not get more. Instead of saying, thank you, landowner, for choosing me and hiring me to work in the vineyard, they get mad at the landowner who graciously chose them to work in his vineyard. Did they deserve to be hired in the first place? No. The very fact that the first hour workers even got the privilege of working that day was in itself grace. They didn't somehow deserve to be hired. And, and Jesus is comparing the kingdom of God to a vineyard in this parable. And, and that's significant. That's how he starts, starts out. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells this, this parable about the vineyard and the workers in the vineyard. So we can assume since this is talking about the kingdom of God, we can assume that the, the landowner is who? God. Yeah, God. And so then we need to ask ourselves, well, who are the workers in the vineyard? Well, probably who? God's chosen people, right? Kingdom citizens, those who have graciously, graciously been invited into the kingdom to serve God. So if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, you're one of the vineyard workers. Now we need to ask ourselves one more question. Well, then what's this whole denarii denarius thing? What does the denarius that each of them get represent? And again, what's the rule of interpreting parables? Context, context, context. And we looked back at chapter 19 earlier. And when the rich young ruler approaches Jesus and asks what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus tells him to sell his possessions, give to the poor, and follow him. Peter then asks, we've already left everything to follow you. What do we get? And how does Jesus answer him? Eternal life. So it seems pretty obvious that the denarius represents eternal life. It's what everybody receives who graciously gets called to work in the vineyard and serve God to serve God in the kingdom. So here's the main point of the parable, and that's this. Say this out loud with me. The kingdom of God doesn't operate on a system of fairness, 
but rather on a system of grace. The kingdom of God does not operate on a system of fairness, but rather on a system of grace. And some of you might be sitting here this morning still a little bit bothered by this parable, wishing that God's kingdom worked more like the world. Wishing that the world, that God's kingdom worked on a system of fairness, where everyone gets exactly what they deserve. And as you begin to play the part of the fairness police, comparing yourself to those around you, how you're better than them and better than those people, you might be tempted to think, man, I wish that God would just be fair and give me what I deserve. Give me what's coming to me. Be careful. Be careful. The Bible is quite clear about what you deserve. It's quite clear about your wages. What are wages? It's what you earn. It's what you deserve, right? It should be a very familiar verse popping up in some of your heads who know the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. What does it say about wages there? Say it out loud. For the wages of sin is death. This is what you earn or deserve because of sin. We're all sinners. We've all offended a holy God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And what do we deserve? What have we earned? What do we, what do we get? We deserve death. That's, that's our wage. My friends, as sinners, we don't even deserve life, let alone anything good in life. We don't even deserve to be breathing in and out right now. It's grace. Life itself is grace from a good God. And anything good in life is what? Grace upon grace. And eternal life is amazing grace. Verse continues, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's be very, very thankful, my friends, that God does not give us what we deserve. Let's be very, very thankful that God is not fair, that he doesn't operate on a system of fairness. That would not go well for us. You know what else is interesting here? This parable is only found in one of the Gospels, Matthew. Does anybody know the audience to which Matthew was primarily addressing when he wrote? Yeah, Jewish people, Jewish people. Matthew looks at a lot of old, the Old Testament and brings that into his gospel saying, see, this fulfilled that Old Testament prophecy. So he, he's very in tune with how the, the Jewish people are, are interpreting what's happening when Jesus was on earth and the significance of his death, burial, and resurrection. So his audience are for his Jewish countrymen. Well, well that's interesting. Who in this parable would the Jewish people relate with? God's original chosen people. Who would they relate with? The first hour workers, right? The ones who had endured slavery in Egypt, wanderings in the wilderness, the burden of the Mosaic law, which was meant to show them that they really couldn't do it, <laughs> that they needed a savior. This, all the sacrifices that they had to do were pointing them to Jesus. But they endured the burden of all those rituals, all that, that weight of the law that they could not carry in the heat of the day, so to speak. 
With that in mind, who then are the 11th hour workers, the people that get hired at 5 o'clock and come skipping into the vineyard and barely break a sweat? Yeah, us, us, Gentiles. It's not really fair that we Gentile come latelys get to be included at all, let alone inherit eternal life, just like Jewish believers. It's not really fair, but it's gracious. As 11th hour workers, do you really want God to be fair? Or are you now okay with him being gracious? Jesus ends the parable with a conclusion in verse 16. It's going to look familiar. It's the same thing that he said right before telling the parable. And so the parable is bookended by this phrase. Go ahead and say this out loud with me, verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. And here's what we can assume this means. It's not a math problem. <laughs> but here's what we can assume this means based on the parable. If you're recognizing that you're undeserving, that you should be last, you're going to be blessed by anything you get from God. You're going to be blessed by the air that's filling your lungs right now. And you're going to feel like you're first. But if you think mistakenly, that you're deserving, that you should be first as you compare yourself with other people. You're going to be bitter when God chooses to graciously bless others. In essence, you'll feel like you're last. As the worship team makes their way back to the stage, let me remind you of the two ways to look at life. First, say this out loud with me, through the lens of fairness, Constantly thinking about yourself in comparison to others. Continually thinking that God owes you something that you should be first. Constantly jealous over what other people are getting that you aren't getting. Or two, say this out loud. You can look at life through the glasses of grace. I really should have worn my glasses this morning. That would have been coming handy for an illustration, but I didn't. Recognizing that you don't deserve to even be breathing right now. <laughs> And as you go through the difficult circumstances of life in this broken world, instead of growing bitter, you'll grow better. Instead of becoming jaded and cynical, you'll be, grow in contentment, thankfulness, peace, joy, and deep gratitude to God, who graciously showed up at your street corner at the 11th hour and said, you, come follow me. You, come work in the vineyard too. Are you thankful for grace? I am. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you for your grace. We don't deserve it. That's the whole point of it. There's nothing that we have ever done to earn your favor, and yet you have lavished upon us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who died in our place on our behalf instead of us but who rose again to give us hope of eternal life, resurrected life. And as we have that promise and we look forward to walking with you with e for eternity, when there will be no more death, no more pain, no more, no more sorrow, no more want, no more poverty. Lord, 
we thank you. Help your grace to change our perspective on our circumstances. Help us to realize just the fact that we have life and blood coursing through our veins right now is, is grace. It was surprising when you didn't end life when you went into the garden. and confronted Adam and Eve with the, the sin, the brokenness that had entered into the world. But you graciously clothed them and made a way for humanity to be restored into relationship with you. Father, thank you that we're in the vineyard. Thank you that we get to serve. We trust you. We trust you with the reward, and we look forward to it. Amen.